If you can open your Bibles at Acts 25. For those who think we've been in Acts long enough, well, we're almost at the end. Acts 25. This is a bit of a transition passage, but in it we encounter the second of Paul's trials before the Romans. There are, of course, and there is another one to come, which we'll look at next week. But specifically, we're looking at the, uh, the second one, which is before Festus and all that goes on. So Today, it's going to be quite practical rather than um, inspirational. But I hope that's okay, occasionally to be practical. First one. Of chapter 25. Festus then, having arrived in the province three days later, went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore he said, Let the influential men among you go there with me, and and if there is anything wrong about the man, let him then prosecute him. And after he had spent not more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. Caesarea is up from Jerusalem, so whenever you leave Jerusalem, you go down. That's the, the tradition. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him, which could not, which they could not prove. And while Paul in his own, said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law or of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. And I've done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If then I'm a wrongdoer, have me committed. Or, or, sorry, and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true, which these men accuse me of, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, You've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. And while they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man who was left a prisoner by Felix, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it's not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has had an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and and ordered the man to be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go up to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself tomorrow. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. 
So on the next day, when Agrippa uh, came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and, and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite to, about him to write to my lord. Therefore, I brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place... I may have something to write, for it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. And so that last piece sets us up for the trial that we'll look at next week, which is before King Agrippa and Bernice. But in this week, we see uh, the second of Paul's trials, and we discover Festus's immediate hope of ingratiating himself with the Jewish authorities. When, on first meeting him, they asked to have, Paul look, have him look at Paul's case. And then we see him following this up on return to Caesarea, inviting the Jewish authorities to bring their unsubstantiated um, complaints, their, their accusations against Paul. And so this whole troop comes up again from Jerusalem and up to Caesarea, and they stand before Festus, and they're accusing Paul of all kinds of things, all of which are untrue, but they're just trying to get him prosecuted by Festus. And next we see Festus again trying to, to, to please the Jewish authorities. He wants to have Paul return to Jerusalem for trial, as they're requesting, even though he's in, this is the legal place for the trial to take place, which is at Caesarea. And we know from the text that this is just part of a plot by those same authorities again to try and have Paul murdered on the road, on the way. They so angry with him and so want to get rid of him, the Jewish authorities, that they want to to break the law in every way possible to get him done away with. And so Paul, realizing how dangerous the situation is, that that it looks like he's going to be sent back to Jerusalem for trial, even though that's an illegal act, Paul appeals to Caesar. Going over the head of Festus himself, he appeals to the highest authority in the empire in the hope of getting justice. And notice that Paul says he even, he's even prepared to die if that's what the court decides. He just wants justice, even if that's the just decision of the courts. He's prepared to die, but he just doesn't want a kangaroo trial or kangaroo court trying him in Jerusalem. Then into the mix arrive King Herod and Agrippa, his wife. Uh, no, not Agrippa, his wife. King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And they've come to pay their respects to Festus, who's just arrived on the scene as the governor. So they're giving their respects, which was the, 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 uh, the thing to do at the time. And there's a great show and, uh, and everything. And, uh, and Festus explains how he's followed the law explicitly, even though he hasn't, because he was going to send uh, Paul back to Jerusalem against the law. But he, he makes a great show of having kept the law. The time of Festus as governor was not without his challenges at that time. We mentioned last week the Sicarii, which were basically a bunch of nationalist terrorists who were moving throughout Jerusalem and through Israel at the time. And the Sicarii were very active during the time of Festus, so he had them to deal with. He also had the Jewish authorities to deal with. And they had other troublemakers arising. And while 
he was in Jerusalem, at his Jerusalem headquarters later on. This isn't in the text. This is in Josephus. Um, there was where the temple is. There was the Caesarian or the Caesar, the, um, the um, governor's palace that overlooked the temple. There was also King Agrippa's te- palace that overlooked the temple. And the Jewish authorities decided they didn't want to be overlooked. So they built the Western Wall and blocked out the view of both the, um, the uh, governor and of King Agrippa. And uh, so they ordered that King Agrippa and, and Festus ordered this wall to be taken down. And so the Jewish authorities appealed to Poppaea, who was um, Nero's wife in Rome. And Poppaea favoured the Jews, so she said, no, you're not tearing down the wall, the wall can stay. And that is the Western Wall, of course, which is now the Wailing Wall today. That's why they built it. They built it to keep the Romans and to keep King, King Agrippa out from seeing what was going on in the temple. So Festus's time was troublesome there. And he's, he's straight away trying to make it easier for himself. But in the end, he ends up just breaking the rules. And through all of this, we see Paul as a model citizen. He treats Festus with respect. He appeals to Caesar only when realizing that he won't get justice at the hands of Festus, even though it's obvious that he is innocent of the charges. What about us? Are we model citizens? The, absent, the advent of social media has opened up all kinds of opportunities for people to express their opinions. And over our current political crisis, I've been quite shocked at the opinions expressed, and especially by Christians, on both sides of the argument. It's not that we're not entitled to have our opinions, but the way we express them, the way we debate, needs to be based on our citizenship of heaven not just our political allegiances. Turn with me to Romans in chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God, and those who exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and, they've opposed, and they have opposed, they who, who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what's good and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it's a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on those who practice evil. Therefore, it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. The authorities Paul is referring to in that Romans passage are the Roman governors and the emperor. And we know from history that Roman rule was brutal and at times merciless. There was no such thing as human rights under Roman rule. The only rights that mattered were those of the emperor and the ruling classes. And Roman rule functioned on the basis of patronage. If someone in high office did you a favor, you were obliged to return the favor and support them in any way you could. So if a senator 
looked for a family and, and advanced their young son, then that whole family was obligated to the senator to support him and to be on his side, come what may. And so you can see that the whole system from top to bottom was corrupt. Furthermore, Roman authorities did not consider the income of the individual before levelling its taxes. It was a poll tax everyone had to pay at a set amount. I mean, it was a lot less than we have to pay. They only had to pay 1% of their income. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Or 3% in times of war. But this is why it says in Luke chapter 2 that Caesar Augustus sent out a census into the whole of the world. He wanted to know how much tax revenue he could get. And of course, that, God used that to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. Taxes, of course, were not used in those days to help the poor or to build the infrastructure or to build hospitals. They were made, they were levied to line the pockets of the ruling classes or to keep the army in the field. Most of the taxes were used for that purpose. And of course, Nero, to whom Paul appeals in this passage, was one of the most corrupt and obnoxious emperors of all. He was completely debauched. He imagined himself a great poet and singer and would subject his his subjects to listening to him read his poetry and sing his songs. He would also go out secretly after dark in disguise to murder people on the streets of Rome, just for the pleasure of doing so. Eventually, of course, he commenced the persecutions against the Christians after blaming them for the fire that burned down the city of Rome. And the tortures he implemented in this respect were brutal and horrific. We don't need to recount them here. And it's that very authority that Paul is instructing the Roman Christians to submit to. How would we have reacted? How do we react? So why do we have to submit? Paul makes it clear that our government has been established by God. Our government has been established by God. may not like them, but God has allowed them to come into place. When we criticize and dishonor our government, we're criticizing that which God has established. Think about that for a moment. I don't know about you, but I am struggling with this at the moment. I don't think the government or even the whole of parliament is serving the country well. I see vested interest, political manoeuvring for personal gain, lack of integrity on all sides, as well as continuous power plays. Of course, the last time we had such a dysfunctional parliament, Cromwell marched the army into parliament and sent all the MPs home. Sometimes I wish somebody would do that now. (laughs) But I don't expect it to happen. As Winston Churchill said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried In this world of sin and woe, no one pretends that democracy is perfect or or all wise. Indeed, it's been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. (laughs) We live in a parliamentary democracy, and it's far from perfect. I personally took exception at the Supreme Court decision a couple of weeks ago, not because I disagreed with the outcome, but because it broke our Constitution. We could argue that they had little choice, but the implication of this unprecedented step for the future is yet to be realised. 
However, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, I'm called and instructed by the word of God to submit to those in authority, to submit to the law of the land and to those who create those laws. What does that mean in reality? I believe it means exercising my democratic right to vote. I believe it means speaking out to challenge the government when there are issues of injustice. I believe it it can even mean joining protest marches. However, I don't believe it means taking unlawful direct action. The model for this is the early church, which despite the persecutions and suffering they endured, continued to be and were known as the best citizens in the empire. They were a model for the way people should live under a, 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 a difficult regime. I'm surprised by the loyalty and even patriotism expressed by many of the ancient Christians to the Roman Empire. And there's a common but false impression among both Christians and non-Christians that ancient Roman Christians hated Rome because they were persecuted by some of the emperors and their subordinates. Actually, that's wrong. True, some ancient Christian writers expressed harsh criticism towards the empire, especially the persecuting of Christians, who they argued were loyal subjects and citizens. I think it's not entirely wrong to say that many of the ancient Christian writers in the Roman Empire were proud to be Roman citizens. At the same time, however, most of these ancient Roman Christians writers expressed strong reservations about Rome, not just the city itself, but about the empire. Not only because it understood them and persecuted them, but echoing the New Testament itself, they urged Christian readers to be in the world but not of the world. They did take part in civil disobedience when things of their faith were at stake. So they refused to burn incense to the emperor and other such practices. However, by their actions of caring for the poor and needy, not only of their own community, but also of those who were pagans, they modeled active citizenship, which was something better than the society around them. How does that work out for us in our generation? Can we live by biblical standards? Or are we going to get caught up in the way of the world, of criticizing and knocking down? Or are we going to actually be something different, a model a different way of being in a difficult political situation? Paul also tells us to honor those in authority. What does it mean to honor means to give a right um, expression of those people. In the past, we were a country of honor, but we have become a country of dishonor. In In our society, we're more interested in tearing people down than giving them due honor and respect. It's a national pastime to undermine national leadership or to knock our heroes off the pedestal we put them on. We love to tear down instead of building up. But Christ's mission was to restore dignity and honor to fallen creatures by making them righteous with his righteousness. And while none of us enjoys sycophantic backslapping, it is appropriate to acknowledge publicly both talent and responsibility carried by an individual. And if we find it hard to honor the person, we should honor the office they hold. Scripture, as we've seen, is very clear on this point. Those who govern us, have been put there by God. We should honor them. 
We don't have to like them or agree with them or agree with their policies. However, we're called to obey and to give them due respect. Who of us would carry the responsibility of governing this country? And yet we criticize the prime minister, the government, the parliament. Rather, we should pray for them. They're appointed by God. Do we try and fiddle our taxes? Do we begrudge the rates? Jesus said when challenged about taxes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what are the things that are God's. And I'm acknowledging none of this stuff is easy, especially in the situation in which we find ourselves. But I believe we need to live by a higher standard, by values of the kingdom, both in the way we speak and in the way we act. And none of this is to make a political point because I'm not agreeing with any party, one or the other, or with any position on Brexit or anything else. I just think it's got to be an attitude of our heart that expresses something different. It's easy to get dragged into the ways of the world and just join in with the negative critique of all authority. However, we're called to be a different kind of citizen because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. The government will do things we don't like. They will take decisions that have a negative effect on communities or on society. They will do things out of self-interest and self-aggrandizement. At the end of the day, they are fallen human beings, but they are also the ones who have put themselves forward to try and lead us. They have stood up and been counted. And we have the chance every five years to vote them out if we don't like what they do, sometimes a bit sooner than that. And the citizens of Hong Kong right now would love that privilege. So my challenge to all of us is, are we going to talk and act like everybody else? Or are we going to seek to be different so that the world um, can see something different in the way we model our views? Paul, even though subjected to this fallen Roman government, used it to fulfill the purposes of God in his life. So too... Can we? I want to pray for us, and then we'll sing our our final song. Father, whatever our political allegiances, whatever our views, I pray that we would live as model citizens. I pray, Lord God, that we would give honor where honor is due. I pray, Lord God, that you'll help us to be positive in the world around us. And that, Lord God, that will be part of the testimony that says we are a people who are different. We are a people of a higher kingdom. We are a people who who honor the authority of God. And we honor those that he puts in authority over us. I pray, Lord God, your blessing on us as a people. And I pray for us as a country, Lord, as we navigate the next few weeks, that you would, Lord God, bring your will to bear that you would bring your purposes out of all this, whatever the outcomes. And that, Lord God, you would indeed would establish again this nation as a righteous nation. May you use us, Lord, for your purposes. We don't deserve it. But we call out to you and ask, Lord God, that you would again use us for your purposes in this world. For the sake of your kingdom and your glory. Amen.